Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. Welcome aboard Captain Fi, the financial independence podcast. G'day. Welcome to an episode of Captain Fi, the financial independence podcast where I open the cockpit to some of the best and brightest in personal finance as well as those who've reached or are on their way to financial independence. On board today is Stefan Levera, one of Australia's top cryptocurrency and Bitcoin experts. Stefan had an interest in economics and tech from a very young age, and professionally this led him to start his career as a chartered accountant. Stefan has worked in a number of top-tier financial firms, including Deloitte, Commonwealth Bank and Macquarie Bank, but when he discovered Bitcoin, it changed his life. He co-founded the Ministry of Nodes, which is a business that focuses on educational content and training on the economics and technology of Bitcoin, where he also contracts. He also hosts the Stefan Levera Bitcoin podcast, which is one of the world's leading Bitcoin podcasts and has over 2 million downloads. Stefan has interviewed many high-profile Bitcoin, libertarian, Austrian, and macroeconomics experts. Stephen is now recognized as pretty much the leading crypto expert in Australia. Other than hosting the SLP, these days, Stefan is focused on educational interviews about the economics and technology of Bitcoin. He's a well-known crypto economics presenter and regularly attends talks, presents talks, and participates in moderated panel discussions. In conferences, Stephen is now ranked by Hive.one as one of the top trusted names in Bitcoin, and he loves nothing more than calling out, as he puts it, the shitcoin shills, which are people that behave in predatory behavior in the industry. Go, Stefan. Thanks so much for making time to come on the Captain Fire podcast. Before we get cracking, would you be able to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so in terms of my background, I was interested in Austrian economics from a young age. And that, I think, was part of my interest in Bitcoin. And so I was always more of a tech savvy, tech enthusiast kind of guy. So professionally, I am a chartered accountant and I was working in Deloitte and then later went on to work in financial services companies like Commonwealth Bank of Australia, Macquarie Bank. And for me, the the interest with Bitcoin was more just the possibility of creating this alternative financial system uh, and a system that allowed people to save for the long term. And that there were, in some sense, Bitcoin gives us assurances that the normal fiat or government uh, banking system cannot possibly give us. So that was my main interest in Bitcoin in the earlier days when I was first getting into all of this. What exactly is a cryptocurrency and why should people care about it? So I view it more like it's about Bitcoin, right? It's Bitcoin and so not as much about cryptocurrency generally. But yeah, I guess the general idea, if you will, is that people are essentially creating a money that exists outside of normal fiat banking systems. So Bitcoin can be thought of like a digital monetary network. So you can join this monetary network by downloading the software and you can essentially send money around the world at a vastly lower cost than what it would otherwise cost to to have final settlement of gold or of 
fiat money and it allows you to have more control over it. So think of it like it's a monetary network that you can join and then there are tokens that you send over that network. And so the, I guess the confusing thing about Bitcoin is we refer to Bitcoin as the overall network, but then also the token that travels on that network is also referred to as Bitcoin. But I guess the other point to clarify there is that one, although one Bitcoin as we speak today, it's what is it like 54,000 USD or something like that, but you can buy a fraction of that. And that's called a Satoshi or a SAT. So there are 100 million SATs or Satoshis in one Bitcoin. So it's almost like a dollars and cents type. Exactly. Yeah. So do you see crypto uh, as a whole uh, because there are other types of crypto, not just Bitcoin. But do you see this new asset class of digital currency tokens disrupting the current fiat monetary system? Eventually, yes. But for me, I would I, I would change the framing there a little bit. I would say it's more like Bitcoin, not digital assets as a class, if you will. Yes, there are other tokens. I just don't see any of those having the same kind of impact that Bitcoin will have. And the reason for that is that we have to look and we have to think back to why do we choose money and why is there such a strong tendency towards the best one? So yes, there might be other tokens out there and they might have some kind of utility, but in terms of which one is going to be a money, we would think it's the one that has the best monetary characteristics and that there is overall this very high opportunity cost of holding your wealth in one thing versus another, right? If I hold more Australian dollars, that's less US dollars that I can hold as an example. And so there's this tendency then towards using the best one. There's a tendency towards the one that is actually scarce, that actually is has a credible level of monetary qualities around it. Like it's got this kind of scarcity. It's got this level of accessibility and availability to use that network. So I think of it like this, we are progressing through stages in terms of Bitcoin adoption. So in the early years, it was much more of a kind of wild, crazy thing that we didn't really know what it was. And over time, people were so slowly starting to learn and, and appreciate what it is best used for. So I think the, the pathway that it will evolve along is something closer to, and this is historically how money has evolved also, is it moves in these stages. So it starts as a collectible, then it's a store of value, then it's widely used as a medium of exchange, and then it becomes a unit of account. So I think... While Bitcoin can mean different things to different people, and sometimes people use it for, let's say, spending under conditions of adversarial conditions, if you will, like under living under some kind of tyrannical dictatorship or some kind of condition where you have been banned or blocked by the normal fiat money banking system, I think the use case for most people at least in these early years, is think of it like long-term savings. So it's like a digital savings technology that exists outside of government and protects you from inflation in that sense. Well, you've actually answered my next two questions because I was going to say, how could Bitcoin realistically be used for transactions when people are hoarding them as a store of wealth, causing that price vol uh, volatility? But as you've said, it's progressing through stages. And so you um, can see that we're in that hoarding stage now where people are collecting them. And so realistically, when do you think Bitcoin might be used for transactions? So the way to think through this is over time, as Bitcoin gets more adopted, as more people start to use it as their savings technology, then it will make sense for some people to start spending it more, more people to start spending it directly. 
Now, of course, let me be clear. There are people who live on Bitcoin today, 100%. They earn Bitcoin, they spend Bitcoin, they they fully, for all intents and purposes, they use it as their, it's everything for them. It's their store of value, it's the medium of exchange, and it is their unit of account in many cases. They denominate their net worth in Bitcoin terms. But in terms of when that happens for the masses, that is a different question. And the way to think through that is that when you more likely to spend Bitcoin, what kind of conditions would have to be true for that to take place? And one way to think of that is if the other person, if lots of people already have a savings pool of Bitcoin, then they're more inclined to actually start taking it. So for now, we're still distributing this thing out to the world. And so think of it like Bitcoin as a network started in 2009. And a lot of the coins were, if you will, front loaded in terms of the issuance of them. So the current supply as we speak today, 24th of March, 2021, it's something like 18.65 or 18.7 million of the 21 million coins. Now, that's a very important piece of the puzzle here because Bitcoin has a strict 21 million coin limit. There will never be more than 21 million coins and they're being issued over time. But think of it like they had to be distributed out. And in the early years, people didn't understand what it was. They were, And maybe some people who had it, they didn't realize the value of what they had. So in another analogy might be, imagine thousands of years ago before gold had become money and you are just a random villager and you come across this gold rock and it looks so cool and it's like really nice looking and if you didn't realize that this could eventually become money and therefore able to purchase a lot of things for you, you might have thrown it away or you might have maybe sold it too cheap because you didn't recognize the value of it. And that is, in essence, what some people did in the early years of Bitcoin. They didn't realize that this thing is going to undergo a massive adoption curve, just like technology and the internet had its adoption curve, Bitcoin is going to go through its own adoption curve. It's just that we are very early in the grand scheme of things. If the global population as we speak today is, call it 7.9 billion people, the actual numbers of people in the world who hold Bitcoin and are exposed to Bitcoin, if we had to estimate it, we're talking maybe 1% or 2%. We're talking maybe 100 million or 150 million who have some exposure to Bitcoin. So we are extremely early in the game in Bitcoin's adoption. I did read a headline about some bloke who paid for his pizzas in Bitcoin and they turned out to be $100 million pizzas or something. Oh, it's more than that. It's actually about half a billion in today's terms. So the different types of cryptocurrencies. So most people obviously will know of Bitcoin. Another big one is Ethereum, but there seem to be a myriad of these altcoins coming out. As you said, with Bitcoin early on in the release, people had no idea of the value of the Bitcoin. What do you think about these altcoins? And are we similarly just passing by opportunities with some of these other coins? So... This might sound really toxic, but I basically think all of the altcoins are shitcoins. And let me explain that. So basically, the problem here is that a lot of these coins market themselves in a certain way as though they are... Now, obviously, it varies depending on which shitcoin we're talking about. But some of them basically say, oh, look, see, we're the next Bitcoin. We can do cheap and fast transactions. And they essentially, a lot of them basically misrepresent the trade-offs involved with doing these kinds of things. And in other cases, they're not actually decentralized, or in most cases, in almost all of them, 
altcoins are not decentralized like Bitcoin is. They have some kind of founder or they have some kind of benevolent dictator. They have some kind of centralized foundation that can coordinate forks and changes in the protocol. They can roll back things. They can change the rules or they are, in other cases, the actual running of the nodes of those altcoins is not decentralized. It's not easy for an average everyday retail individual to run the software that enables people to run that coin, if you will. And the other thing as well is that some of them essentially try to confuse people with utilities, right? So the way to think of that is it's not necessarily about having more utility for something. It's about considering why is something money and why would it be useful? What makes something a better money than others? And one way to think of that is to think about exactly how scarce Bitcoin is and from a what we call stock to flow perspective. So I would say that for people looking at things from like a utility point of view, remember also that having utility doesn't necessarily mean value will accrue to that token. So people, as an example, people might just use that token merely in a pass-through sense. They won't be there trying to hold it. So in economic parlance, we have to think of it, what is the reservation demand for these coins? And ultimately, Bitcoin has a reservation demand and it's growing steadily over time because people do want to hold it for the long term. There's actually a reason to do that. But because of thinking in utility parlance people think of it wrong and maybe another way to think of it would be like okay so imagine you've got your bank fees that you're going to have would you prepay your bank fees or would you merely just pay them as and when they come due and imagine if i said oh hey man there's this coin and it's called bank coin fees or bank fees coin would you hold that coin no you would hold the thing that's going up the most or you would hold your thing hold the thing that at least stores your value for the long term i.e in this case bitcoin And then periodically, when you needed to pay your bank fees, you would just, you know, pay a little bit of that Bitcoin as your bank fee. That's really the way I would navigate some of these things. And that's why in this space, I basically Bitcoin only, I encourage other people who are learning just to go Bitcoin only and don't waste time learning about and getting involved in these shit coins because a lot of there's a there's this whole industry around scamming retail people into buying these shit coins. There's a whole kind of insider game where basically the creators of that coin work with maybe fund uh, quote unquote crypto fund managers of that coin. They try to get that coin listed on some shitcoin casino exchange because they know that will be a, a real big mass liquidity event. And then they dump onto the new unsuspecting retail. That has unfortunately been the phenomenon that we've seen in 2016, 2017. And to some extent, we are now seeing history rhyming with some of the coins now with like DeFi coins and things like that. So that for me is why I'm very strong on that terminology. I think we, you, people just are getting misled and thinking that these altcoins are something like Bitcoin when really they're nothing like Bitcoin. Now, some of the exceptions I would say here, though, are things like, let's see, stable coins, right? So these are intended to represent fiat, right? So as an example, USDT, like Tether which represents a US dollar, right? So I can see a case for people using some of those more in the, I need to get my money out of the country sort of thing or where they need to maneuver around the system and having a crypto version of fiat might be handy. But in terms of actual cryptocurrencies, the only one I actually use is Bitcoin. The only one I really talk about is Bitcoin. Obviously out out there in the space, you'll see other people talking about them. 
But I would say, think of it this way. Bitcoin is actually a decentralized protocol and community of people or communities of people. And they don't have a necessarily a marketing budget. The reason why people might have heard of many of these shit coins is they actually do have a marketing budget. They have whatever it is like Dash and whatever. They have a foundation and they might have what's called a pre-mine where basically they issue themselves a lot of the coin. And for example, with Ethereum, Ethereum was pre-mined. I think it's 70%, if I recall correctly, 70% of Ethereum was pre-mined and given to early uh, investors or co-founders and creators and all sorts of things like that. Whereas Bitcoin was actually a fair launch. There was no pre-mine. It was totally just a, here's the protocol. You can mine on it if you wish. And yes, Satoshi was one of the early miners on the protocol, of course, but it was an open and fair launch. The protocol, the white paper was listed or launched in 2008. People had notice before the network was actually started in January 2009. So that's how I would distinguish there between Bitcoin and shitcoins. Wow. So the altcoins or shitcoins, actually, I quite like that term, Stefan. That's great. (laughs) They're like penny stocks, if we're going to equate this to traditional financial independence people are probably more familiar with the stock market and bitcoin is almost like your blue chip or your blue coin so to speak yeah i know i used to follow some of the fi fire financial independence retire early material myself and so i guess to analogize you know how a lot of people in the in that community are talking about you know maybe they're bogleheads and they're very into vanguard global stock etfs bitcoin is like that vanguard global stock etf it's the low cost solid option that you just buy this thing and it just goes up over time that's bitcoin whereas like gambling on these random pink sheet you know stocks and things those are shit coins yeah that makes a lot of sense if, if we're going to think of bitcoin as a blue chip stock um, a lot of people have got very different ways to value stocks that leads to the question stefan how do you value bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency Very good question. And this is a tough one for people coming from a traditional investor mindset, because most of us are thinking in terms of stocks, bonds, or property. And stocks have, they have dividends and they have capital gains. And property has rental returns and capital gains. And bonds have a coupon and a face value that you receive at the end. Whereas Bitcoin does not have that, we have to think of Bitcoin more like it's a monetary adoption. And so that's why it's hard to value Bitcoin in that way. It's not, you can't think of it like it's going to have dividends that it is throwing off or bond coupon yield. It's not like that. It should be thought of as a monetary adoption thing. And so if we were to think of relative market sizes, so as we speak today, Bitcoin's market in USD terms is something around 1 trillion. The global market for money is something like 90 trillion. The global market for wealth storage is something around 300 or 400 trillion dollars in USD terms. Now, if we were to think of Bitcoin as, okay, what if it just did digital gold? Well, then gold today is something like nine or 10 trillion dollars in terms of the total market. So that means Bitcoin would go roughly 10x if Bitcoin merely supplanted gold. And we think gold, Bitcoin is actually not just gold, it's actually 100 or even 1,000 times better than gold. It does what gold does, only better. And so we think it's going much higher than that. So what I would say is think of it like there are potential valuation cases or theses that we would consider. One example would be to think of the gold case, which is, I call it 10x from here. So basically that's, if even if Bitcoin only does what gold does, we're talking something like $500,000 Bitcoin. And then if Bitcoin actually 
goes after some of the other global store of value market. And we're considering things here like property, stocks, bonds. We are talking in the hundreds of trillions as a potential market. And so funnily, one one of the early Bitcoin pioneers, and he wrote some of the actual predecessor work and contributed to predecessor work, Hal Finney, in the early days of Bitcoin actually foresaw some of this as well. And he was saying, look, if we were to just back of the envelope numbers calculated out based on global wealth, Bitcoin might someday go to $10 million in US dollar terms, purchasing power terms. And so the way I'm looking at it is, if you were to think of it like the bear case for Bitcoin, if you will, is to go 10x from here, about 500k in US dollar terms. And the bull case then is, and I think most of us hardcore Bitcoin people are thinking of it in these terms, is that it is literally going to millions of dollars per coin. We're talking $10 million a coin. And we don't know when, of course, but it might be 10, 15, 20 years from now that it, it approaches that more lofty vision. It almost seems like you'd be really amiss not to have a small holding of Bitcoin. I, look, I, Stefan, I was pretty sceptical about all this and I've put a small investment in, in Bitcoin and I'm considering raising that. In terms of your investments, what percentage would you have invested in Bitcoin versus traditional stores? I'm not really comfortable disclosing the exact percentage, but let's oh, just say yeah. very high percentage, yeah. like extremely high percentage. Because essentially... I understand that there are different levels of people who are into Bitcoin, right? So some people might be, let's say, toe dipping 1% something. And then over time, what happens because of the sheer outperformance of Bitcoin relative to everything else, on average, historically, for the last 10 years or so, it's been doing 200% per year. That's CAGR, cumulative annualized growth rate is something like 200% per year. And so essentially what happens is, yes, it's volatile, but if you basically hold for four years plus, you end up very high in the positive. So even people who, let's say they took a 5% position, after a few years, that might end up being a 20% position. And then after another cycle, that might take them to 80 or 90%. And yes, I guess people who are being very financially prudent, they end up rebalancing. But the hard reality is for a lot of people in the Bitcoin world, they don't rebalance or they maybe they take a little bit off but they essentially keep holding it because as they've gone further and further down the bitcoin rabbit hole and learning about the history of money and why things are so screwed up in the way they are right now in terms of the crazy bubbles that we are living through and seeing in terms of stocks property bonds everything that people are looking at bitcoin as an answer it's an exit it's all sorts of things but fundamentally it represents the fastest running horse, as uh, Paul Tudor Jones would say. Now, that's quite prudent because I've just seen the headlines here in Sydney. A, I think it was a Bondi property went up and just sold for 900000 above reserve. So I think there's definitely a, a, something weird going on with assets, and I think it's probably related to record low interest rates. So it's interesting to see people using Bitcoin as, I guess, a hedge against those traditional stores of wealth and fiat currencies. And so I would say what is driving a lot of this crazy bubble is cheap credit. And so it comes down to looking at the underlying root cause of what's going on. And so in my view, that is central banking, legal tender laws, and various other government interventions into the market for money that have created this bubble, if you will. And so what happened Call it. So I'm a millennial, and I think essentially for many people 
in my generation and perhaps Zoomers as well, they feel like they're locked out of the property market because they either have to go lever to the hilt to even get a property where let's say the generations above us, so Gen or above my generation, Gen X and baby boomers, generally they had it a lot easier in terms of getting a property. Now, yes, the interest rates were higher at the time they were buying property, but from a multiple in terms of their income versus the amount of the house they had to buy, let's say, it might've been in the range of three to four X their income to buy a house at that time for the boomers. And then what's happening now is that caused, if you will, a generational crazy run to property and it changed the culture so i view it like fiat money was like this ultimate root cause that then drove a change in the economics which then drove a change in the culture and drove a change in the politics and so that is why if you look at a lot of countries around the world and obviously australia is one of them that has this huge property cult it's all but you go to the barbecues and everyone talks about their property that they bought and it's all been driven by cheap debt So we've been going through this multi-decade, huge bull run for 30 or 40 years or even more, maybe 50 years that boomers and Gen X and maybe to some extent, the older millennials have had a massive leg up in that regard. They have simply been able to just buy property or buy stocks, go to the beach and that's it, right? Like you just do that and after 30 or 40 years, you're a multimillionaire. But the reality is, what's going on is we've seen a massive devaluation in fiat money and it's just driven these huge bubbles so because of all this kind of credit sloshing around out there it creates this kind of scenario where people end up being priced out or at least younger generations end up being priced out so i see it like bitcoin in some ways is what uh, stocks and property were for their uh, gen x and baby boomer parents all those years ago this kind of links to the DeFi movement, which is something that I've only recently heard about or decentralized finance, which is supposedly a way to overcome that whole issue with fiat and credit. My understanding is it's a way that you can earn a yield on your cryptocurrency. Do you know much about DeFi and is that something we can get into using Bitcoin? Yeah, so DeFi is an interesting one. I see it like Bitcoin can actually do DeFi. Bitcoin is a kind of decentralized finance in that sense. There are platforms where you can borrow against your Bitcoin and there are platforms that allow people to earn stable coins as interest, right? And so some of these are actually sponsors of my show, but there are others out there in the Bitcoin world. But there are also a lot of shitcoin DeFi and I would be very careful with some of this shitcoin DeFi because a lot of these things end up Basically, things like rug pulls end up happening where someone changes a smart contract or something, some condition changes. And the reality is it ends up just being this poker game where only the top 1% of either insiders or extreme high intellect individuals end up basically pwning or owning the wealth of other people. Unless you, I think, you, unless you rate yourself as being one of those DeFi shitcoin insiders, or you are maybe an extremely skilled player of that game, maybe you can read the actual smart contracts going on in shitcoin DeFi land, then you're very likely to lose money there. And so my perspective is Bitcoin DeFi is what people could be looking at if they were, let's say they're sitting on a decent amount of Bitcoin and they want to be able to try and in some sense, unlock the value of it and be able to use some of it without necessarily taking a capital gains event when you sell Bitcoin. So instead of selling, they might borrow against their Bitcoin. And so there are some multi-signature platforms. So 
I guess I don't want to get too technical, but I guess the high level way to think of that is you might put some Bitcoin into a locked up uh, multi-signature. So that might be a two of three where you've got three different parties and you need two of them to agree before you can spend that Bitcoin. And so you might have a lending company or you might have a facilitation company that is essentially acting as one of the keys in that scenario, acting between you, the borrower and the lender. And then you can get some USDT, let's say, or some USD stable coins that allow you to spend now while and then obviously you have to pay interest. There are it's not without risk though, so you can get liquidated if the price moves against you. But that's part of a phenomenon that is growing quite rapidly now. So that is something that we are starting to see. And there are other providers in the Bitcoin space who are doing like interest on Bitcoin. Although personally, I think that is a very high risk strategy. And I think really people have to be extremely careful with these things because we're so early in this. And from my point of view, I see it like Bitcoin is growing in purchasing power on average 200% per year. Like why do you need to go and chase even more interest on top of that? If you just literally learn the right way of holding bitcoin which is to hold your own private keys meaning you can use for example a smartphone bitcoin wallet when you're just getting started and then as you move up you might get a hardware wallet and then moving up from there you might use a multi-signature security setup for your bitcoins once you have a big enough value in them so i would say it's one of those things where you might want to learn about it and get a try to understand what's going on in the bitcoin DeFi world but for the most part people should be looking to accumulate and they should just be thinking of it like it's a savings plan, a savings technology. And that is why I'm a big fan of some companies in the space and I support some of them. I'm involved with some of them as an investor or an advisor or just a promoter of them, like even if they're not paying me, that uh, there are companies out there promoting DCA, dollar cost averaging, or what is also known as auto buying or stacking sats, right? The Satoshis. So the idea is that they are helping people to just regularly accumulate Bitcoin and store them in their own Bitcoin wallet. So I'd, I'd say those are a few of the things to think about in terms of DeFi and how that applies to Bitcoin. We mentioned the cheap credit. So there's money flooding into Bitcoin markets uh, and a lot of options traders, some bears, some bulls. And I've heard that there's a lot, nearly $6 billion worth of options set to expire uh, at the end of this week. Do you think that's going to have an effect on the price of Bitcoin at all? I think it, I, I don't follow the options market like really closely in terms of Bitcoin options, but I think it's one of those things where it's just a growing thing over time. And if you think through who the natural users of some of these markets are, the reason some of those financial markets started is, for example, farmers who needed to have uh, more complicated and financial products to do things like setting a set price for which they could sell their commodities, whether it's wheat or corn or soy or oil or whatever. So in the Bitcoin world, it's miners. They are using mining equipment and they might be looking at trying to hedge out a certain exposure and just lock in a certain price rate. But then on the other hand, there are speculators and traders who are taking the other side of that trade. So that's one way to think of that there. There is also, as uh, on my show, I've interviewed a gentleman known as Plan B. He's very well known in the Bitcoin world, and he has been speaking about this whole cash and carry trade. So that is also a trade that some people are applying. And I think you need a certain level of capital to be able to do this kind of play. It's not necessarily available to the retail user, let's say, but essentially they are able to capture a premium 
And it's like a almost like a risk-free. Now, it's not exactly risk-free. There is still like a platform risk with that. But essentially, by selling these options, selling a forward, selling a future rather, I think, they are able to capture something like 15 or 20% of, gen, of uh, return. Now, they are giving up the upside of Bitcoin though. So basically, they're buying Bitcoin and selling it forward and capturing that premium by giving up any upside beyond that. And in the Bitcoin market, things can move very quickly. So that is one of the risks to consider with that sort of strategy. But for people who are in the more fiat institutional world, they would look at that and think, wow, that's a huge return compared to what I'm getting here because yields are really bad in the normal markets. So that's one element there. But I would say the underlying aspect, why is that happening? is because people are just fundamentally bullish on Bitcoin. There are these big corporations and individuals and even small businesses who are out there stacking sats. So that's what's essentially driving this overall upwards trend. It's monetary adoption. Okay, so it's a, it's more of a consequence of the momentum of the growth of um, of Bitcoin. Exactly. This podcast is brought to you by the best portfolio tracking tool for Aussie investors. ShareSite makes it incredibly simple to track your portfolio with automatic updates of share purchases and dividends, easy-to-read graphs, and comprehensive tax and performance reporting, all wrapped up in an easy-to-use cloud-based system. For users with fewer than 10 holdings, it is completely free, and I even used the free version for years. Head over to captainfire.com forward slash ShareSite dash review to see if ShareSite is for you. CaptainFi listeners can score themselves four months of ShareSite premium for free by using the bonus signup code in the article. If you do ever decide to hold more than 10 stocks, be sure to use this code to get your first four months for free. Even if you do only plan to use the free version, using the code means if you ever do upgrade, you will still get your four months for free. Ditch the Excel spreadsheet and complete your tax with a click of a button by signing up today. That's captainfire.com forward slash share site dash review for your four free months. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's somewhat probably increasing the volatility or the increasing the growth Yes. So I would say it's just a part and parcel of Bitcoin growing up. So in the early days, it was hard enough. There weren't even exchanges. And then over time, exchanges were growing up. And now there's like solid exchange infrastructure. And then maybe there wasn't really great institutional custody, but now that's changing as well. And now we're starting to see big companies coming in to do it. And now we're starting to see the markets around Bitcoin growing up also. So there are spot exchanges and derivative exchanges for Bitcoin and the volume of which is growing quite rapidly, obviously this year. And so I just view this all as part of the network effects of Bitcoin strengthening and growing stronger, deeper, more people who want to hold Bitcoin and more and more people who are trading Bitcoin. And it's all just part of the overall growth story. So you mentioned earlier that there were some fiat-backed coins. Now, my question is, are, are those fiat-backed coins, are they backed by sovereign states? Are they regulating their own crypto? And would it be possible say, could the US government, could they ban Bitcoin and then launch their own fiat currency coin on the blockchain? And what effect do you think that would have on the economy? So I guess there's a lot to unpack there. So firstly, with most of the stable coins, like the US dollar stable coin, for example, there's many of them. USDT is probably the elephant in the room, the big one. And so they are theoretically meant to be backed by US dollars in a bank account. But there are that has been a point of contention around various like 
kind of drama in the space, sometimes lawsuits and uh, stuff going on. But essentially, the recent round of that, I think it seems that Tether settled. So so in this case, the, the big one, they settled with, I think, one of the US government departments on that point. And so personally, I'm not that concerned by that. But I guess to your other question around would governments set up their own, would they try to ban Bitcoin and set up their own? And I think from an Australian context, I think the Australian government is more, if anything, the Australian government is more concerned about stable coins than they are about Bitcoin. And I think in terms of internationally, it seems to me that most governments are not, they're not as fundamentally bullish about Bitcoin as I am. So they are seeing it more just, oh, it's like a digital store of value. It's just like a gold, like a digital gold kind of thing. That's how they are viewing it. And so they are more interested in terms of regulating from an AML and sanctions and some of these other like banking, typical banking regulations that are applying to businesses who are interacting in the Bitcoin space. Now, do I think it's likely that some of the central banks around the world try to come out with their own stable coins? Yes, I think that is a likely possibility, but we might be a couple of years off before we see that become a real mainstream possibility. So for example, Christine Lagarde of the ECB, the European Central Bank, has mentioned publicly, I think three to four years off before they have a euro government backed stablecoin. Now, these will represent a very big angle of a panopticon, if you will, because it allows all the surveillance that they can't have with normal cash. And because cash is going away, I see that a lot of countries will try to launch their own stablecoin and then it'll just be like a government fiat crypto coin, basically. And so it'll allow them to control the inflation. It'll allow them to control what you can spend on. It'll allow them to see what people are doing. Whereas in the Bitcoin world, people can trade into that. And most importantly, the monetary policy, right? So Bitcoin has a set limit of 21 million. It'll be never more than 21 million or it will never be more than 21 million. And so fundamentally, people who just look at a price chart will just see Bitcoin going up and the stablecoin going down. And I see this, it would just be another angle for people to get comfortable with the idea of digital money, even though most of our money already is digital, but they'll just get comfortable with that idea. And then some of them will start buying and using and transacting with Bitcoin. So that's, I think, the likely outcome over the next few years there is that we just see more and more people come into the Bitcoin world and they might swap out of a stablecoin into Bitcoin. That's a really interesting point you make about most of the money is digital anyway, because I can't really think about the last time I actually paid for something using cash. So it makes sense that these sovereign listed stable coins are probably exactly, as you said, just an extension of the fiat currency. I know you mentioned that obviously you're quite bullish on the growth of Bitcoin as the sort of the capital growth phase now. With that, you often see, I've seen cycles of things go up in value and they correct. We saw Bitcoin correct in 2017. Do you think there could be something similar to the 2017 correction within the five to 10 years? Yeah, this is a big debate in the community. So Bitcoin has moved historically in these four-year cycles. So it started in 2009 and we see that it has traditionally gone around the halving cycles. So the halving for people who aren't familiar, the way Bitcoin is issued is in the early years, it used to be 50 coins every block, so every 10 minutes on average being issued or mined into existence. 
And then after four years, it, it happened a little bit ahead of schedule, that halves. So every four years on average, that will halve. So in 2012, that block subsidy went down from 50 to 25 coins. And then in 2016, that went down to 12 and a half. And then in 2020, it went down to 6.25 coins. And interestingly, what we have seen is after that halving of the halving of incoming supply, so it's not a halving of the overall supply, it's a halving of the newly created coins, we have seen a bull run happen something like nine months or so after that halving. So in 2012, the halving happened, and then 2013 was a crazy bull bull run year. And similarly, in 2016, there was a halving. And then in 2017, there was a crazy bull run year topping out around 20,000 in December of 2017. And then from then till about December 2018, it grinded down and it was something like an 80% drop because it went from 20K down to maybe 3 or 4K at the bottom. And then it hung around the kind of 8, 9, 10,000 range for, for a little while. And then we had the halving again in 2020. And now, as we speak, we're around 54, 55,000 USD. So it's funny because people could have bought Bitcoin at something like 5,000 or 4,000 in March of 2020. And now we are a solid 10, 11, maybe 12 times that. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. So in terms of the cycle, I think we are likely to have at least one or two more of these. So for all I know, and again, this is one of those things where nobody has a crystal ball, but a lot of people in the community are anticipating the cycle top this time around. It might be anywhere from 250,000, 300,000 range. And then who knows where we drop? Maybe it drops to 50K from there. We really don't know. There are others out there who say it's actually going way higher. It might go to a million or something this cycle. We, don't, we really don't know. And then there are some in the community who think, now the whole four-year cycle thing is over and this is the final one. For me, I don't think this is the final one. I think we're probably going to have a few more of these on the way up. I think we are just not there yet in terms of global adoption. But the counterpoint would also be, look, the macro environment has also changed. March 2020 changed a lot of things for people. And that was what spurred many other people along on their own journey, such as Michael Saylor of MicroStrategy to start going and buying Bitcoin and using it literally as his corporate treasury reserve asset. And then Tesla bought in and now all these other companies are buying in and all these billionaires and investors and insurance firms are even buying in. So it's tough to say where this all goes in terms of later this year. But my, call it my base expectation is that we will have a huge crazy bull run over the next, call it three to six months. We And then it'll probably start a little bit of a down cycle because we, if in some sense, got ahead of ourselves or we overextended somehow. And then we'll have a little bit of a down cycle. And then maybe in a couple of years, it'll be rinse and repeat, but just at another level up. It sounds very similar to the S&P 500 chart you go back you see it does that it gets up peaks has a correction goes down and then it keeps coming up but over time you see a general upwards trend in the market so maybe that's what we're going to see with with crypto exactly and that's why i when i talk about bitcoin i think of it like a long-term holder and just like warren buffett says his favorite holding period is forever just like with bitcoin we need to think of it like that and so 
I would suggest for people who are getting into Bitcoin, they should be really trying to learn about the philosophy, the history, the economics, the technology, learn about all these aspects of Bitcoin and think of it like it's a minimum, absolute minimum four year hold. And historically, now, of course, we don't know if the future, what the future holds, but historically, though, even if you timed it at the worst possible time, if you held for four years, you still ended up 5x or 6x, something in that range. And then if you timed it, you people were getting 30 or 40x on that money. So really think of it like a long-term thing that you need to spend the time learning. And that's where people can listen to my show, the Stefan Levera podcast, and they can find all sorts of Bitcoin education from an economics and technical point of view. But really that's what it takes in terms of building up your knowledge and your conviction over time to understand why you should be holding this and playing this as a long-term strategy as opposed to trying to time in a short term buy and sell and trying to time the market because the reality is people who end up doing that end up losing a lot of money because they end up paying capital gains tax they end up paying trading fees they they don't call the top and bottoms correctly the reality is they end up losing a lot of money trying to trade in and out and they sit there thinking oh wait i'm waiting for the next dip oh i'm interested but i'm waiting for a dip and then the dip doesn't come for a long time it's just basically the the easy the best way I would suggest is just start with a small amount, like buy whatever amount you're comfortable and just start learning. And then as you become more comfortable, then slowly increase that and set up some kind of auto DCA or dollar cost averaging kind of plan. That's probably the way to think about it. It's a, But just think of it like this money you're putting in, it's minimum four years before you're even thinking about it. With those bigger companies like Tesla and micro Strategy. starting yep. micro strategy investing in in crypto and even with as you said some of the larger insurance companies following suite it would seem that if a traditional investor is holding an index fund or indeed stocks of those companies do they not now have an indirect exposure to crypto just by virtue of holding that stock of course you're right they do have an indirect exposure but what i would suggest is you want direct exposure and the reason being, you don't, like Bitcoin is a special thing and you have to treat it with that respect. So I would say for people coming in the traditional investor world, don't treat this like it's a stock just on your stockbroking interface and you just buy it and you leave it there on that exchange. No, you have to learn to actually, like actually use it for yourself. And that means holding it on keys you control, meaning on a hardware wallet that you control or a smartphone wallet. And ideally, over time, learning about how to run your own Bitcoin node, because Bitcoin works by what we call decentralized validation. So I'm not expecting people to do this on day one. It's a learning journey. But I would think of it like when you start, you start buying some, and then you learn to withdraw that to your own custody. And then you learn to actually validate for yourself and learn to use Bitcoin for, in a way that you are minimizing the trust in other parties. So don't think of it like it's a you know stock that you leave on the chess sponsored you know brokerage and they hold it for you. Bitcoin is something <laughs> you hold. And that's probably a big mental shift that people have to make when they're first learning about Bitcoin. But that's essentially why I'm trying to guide and warn people about that, that you want to learn to do it for yourself. Because the whole point is you can spend and save in a way that you are not beholden to what other people do. Because, for example, if you leave your coins on a platform, on an exchange somewhere, or worse still, if you use a platform that doesn't even let you withdraw your Bitcoins, then 
you might be beholden to what happens there. There might be exchange hacks. They might um, change the requirements or change something. Whereas when you hold the Bitcoin yourself and you are running your own Bitcoin node, you are not trusting any of these people and you can send it and save it and do exactly as you please. And not just that, I think you will get more of the gain because I think if you try to rely on indirect exposure by holding Tesla or holding MicroStrategy, fundamentally, you won't get the same kind of gains that were possible by just holding Bitcoin natively or more directly. Okay, and so for those reasons, it sounds like it's probably not a good idea to look at crypto ETFs or listed funds for crypto exposure then. So I guess that's a complicated question because for some people I can understand where maybe if they are not even willing to do that work, maybe like you could argue, okay, maybe it's net better that they at least buy a Bitcoin fund. And maybe if they if there's work being done on things like having Bitcoin funds that super funds can invest in just to get exposure, I guess it would help them on the margin, that individual. But really, I would say if you're the kind of person listening to this show, if you're actually thinking about these things, you are probably smart enough and motivated enough that you can get a much better, you can do better than that. You don't need to just buy the ticker on a Bloomberg terminal somewhere. You can actually go and set up with an exchange and buy some Bitcoin or go to an ATC and buy some Bitcoin or go to a local Bitcoin meetup and buy some Bitcoin and withdraw that to keys that you control. And you will get, it's a, it's obviously it's a little bit more work, but it's so much more reward. And it's the, the safety and the control. Exactly. Yeah, and that's basically like everyone who's in this financial independence movement, it's all about building up enough assets and passive income to actually buy your time back and have control of your life again. So yeah, it does seem interesting that someone would then give that control out to someone else. Oh, 100%. I think you put it very well there. And I think this is a funny thing. I think I see a lot of similarities between the Bitcoin community and the FIRE community because it really is about thinking through your time. I know a very well-known book in the FIRE world is Your Money or Your Life by uh, Vicky. Uh, I can't remember her last name, but I'm sure it's a one. Vicky Robbins, yeah, it's yeah. a fantastic book. Yeah, I remember reading that years ago and I very much aligned with that. And I think a lot of Bitcoin people do see it like that, that there are very few things on this earth that are truly scarce because as humans, our ingenuity is incredible. We can go and make more things we can economize on them we can find substitutes as julian simon said in his book the the ultimate resource but fundamentally what are the only things on this earth that are scarce it's your time and it's bitcoin fundamentally people who stack bitcoins because of the incredible returns that bitcoin has had 200 per year on average historically they have freed their time up And so there were many people who have, once they've been holding for a couple cycles of this, yes, it was volatile. Yes, it wasn't easy along the way. There was bad news and, oh no, the government's going to regulate it or it got banned in certain countries, but then other countries supported it. And so fundamentally, people were able to free themselves and put their time into projects that they really love and adore or spend more time with their family or work on jobs that they actually really want to do. So in the fire world, and I know it's one of those things where people in the fire world talk about how it's not necessarily true that the best thing is to be rich and just live on the beach drinking pina coladas. Actually, real 
fire is about finding what you are passionate about and finding something to retire to as opposed to just coming at that mindset of, oh, I hate my job. I want to get out of there. No, you want to have something that you're retiring to. And you're not necessarily retiring to sit on the beach. And look, maybe for some people, that's enough for them. That's what they want. But ultimately, it's about finding what you're passionate about. And I think many people in the Bitcoin world, they've found they're passionate about building this parallel financial system. And that might mean they might be developing some software in the system. They might be working in a Bitcoin company, helping in sales for that company or customer support, or they might be somebody contributing in an open source project and documenting, or they might be somebody who is maybe they don't have the skills themselves, but they've got a lot of money or they've got a lot of Bitcoin and they want to fund the kinds of development work that they would like to see, whether that is additional privacy technology or scalability or resilience and allowing more and more people to use Bitcoin in the way it was intended. So I think there is a real alignment and a synergy there between the typical fire person and a typical Bitcoin person. It's just they don't know it and they don't necessarily know a lot about each other's worlds. Now, Stefan, there's this new there's a new acronym, all right, on the internet, oh, yeah? and and I don't I don't really understand it, and it's an NFT. <laughs> I, I think that stands for non fungible token. Or yep. non-frangible token. Non-fungible token. Yep. Non-fungible. Okay, it's something to do with cryptocurrency. Can you give us like a quick five on what that is and <laughs> is it worth getting into? Look, we were talking about shit coins earlier. I would basically put them mostly in that category. But look, that said, I can appreciate that it's like a thing where there are artists out there and they want to put a stamp of their work. But what I would say is think of it like it's something closer to an autograph than it is you are actually owning that artwork. Because, and you are in essence trusting that artist or whoever created that token is not just going to go and, you know, turn around and then go create more of that same type on that specific artwork or on that song or whatever it is. And now the thing is, yeah, it's people conflate the, if you will, the Bitcoin world with the crypto and the shitcoin world along with the NFT world. But I really think they're just not that related. They're just people just see it like this crazy thing where some artist is selling an NFT for $69 million or whatever. And then they immediately, they might want to flip that over into Bitcoin to save it for the long term. But the reality is I like, unless you think that somehow you are some kind of special art collector or whatever, I would I would steer very clear of this whole NFT phenomenon. I just, I, unless you, for whatever reason, you want to get into that particular culture of, I don't know, buying something off an artist. For me, I see it, there's a very loose connection with, they, they might say, oh, see, you have this kind of certificate on the blockchain of this particular artwork or whatever, that you have some kind of claim to it. But the reality is a lot of these some of these NFTs are really being done on shitcoin chains that we don't know if they will actually be around in the future for the long term. So I would be very careful before getting into any of those kinds of NFT things. And just I would say there's really, to be honest, not much relevance as well from a fire perspective. It's really more just stacking bitcoins that has a fire relevance. Roger that. I'll steer clear of NFTs and shitcoins and I'll keep... I'll keep learning about how to stack sats because I think that's a cool, that's a cooler term. Do you have a side hustle? My side hustle is websites. 
a form of digital real estate. If you want to learn more about this lucrative side hustle, check out my review of the eBusiness Institute and their online self-paced courses. They cover everything from total beginners right through to advanced web design and how to buy, renovate, and sell websites for profit. As a graduate of Matt and Liz's courses, I can't thank them enough for the valuable web skills they gave me, and now I enjoy growing my portfolio of websites for income. Captain Fly listeners can register for free access to some of these courses by signing up using the link at www.captainfy.com forward slash ebusiness-institute-review. Build your portfolio of digital real estate and start using websites to make money today. Stefan, mate, it's been awesome to go through all of this stuff. Thanks so much for unpacking this pretty complex industry. What I would love to do now is ask you a couple of questions that I get everyone who comes on the show to do. Sure. Um, and it's more just towards uh, your personal financial independence journey, if that's okay. Sure. Yeah, awesome. So I guess the first one, and you touched on it before, but your personal investing preference and styles and how, where do you store your crypto and how is the safest way to do it? Gotcha. Yeah. So I use multi-signature for my Bitcoin. I would say once you get to a certain level, you do need to start thinking about multi-signature, which is a more advanced security technique. But in terms of tips for newbies out there, I would say when you're just getting started, just start small and basic. Go on your phone. There's this wallet called Moon Wallet, M-U-N Wallet. That's a good, easy one just for uh, smaller values. If you're just getting started with Bitcoin, that's an easy one. It will get you started. It's a good choice. Then going up from there, I would say look at what's called a hardware wallet. So my favorite choice there is the cold card. So now disclosure, they are a sponsor of my show. They're uh, coinkite.com. But I was uh, promoting them even before they sponsored me. I genuinely think it is the best uh, hardware wallet. And you can use that with some other software. I've done episodes as well on that. Uh, but I would say, yeah, look into the cold card as a hardware wallet. And you can use that with kind of other software on your PC, like Spectre Desktop or Sparrow Wallet and some of these other ones. But that will take a bit of time to learn. Go and look at some of the guides on how to use the cold card, which I, which I have. And there's other guides out there. And then... Advancing up from that, there's this technology called multi-signature where you use multiple hardware wallets and put them in multiple locations and make it even more difficult for somebody to steal your Bitcoins and so on. So I would say that's a high-level kind of progression guide. And there are companies out there that will help you to get to use multi-signature. Like one, So one example is Unchained Capital. Now, they're another sponsor of my show. Another one is called Casa. So they're not a sponsor of my show, but they're also a well-known like multi-signature provider in the space. You can use one of those, or it's possible if you're more advanced to actually do it yourself. So those are some tips around securing your Bitcoins. Awesome. And for yourself personally, are you still investing in traditional other asset classes such as property or stock index funds or are you just focused on bitcoin yeah i'm actually just focused on bitcoin because i see it i would rather hold the thing that's going up the fastest and i don't yes of course it can be volatile up and down but i think you want to be holding you want to be riding the fastest horse and so for me i i treat it like i keep a fiat buffer like in the finance world they talk about a six-month emergency fund. I keep basically a fiat cash buffer, but then basically I just continually buy Bitcoin. So I treat it just like that. I live on a personal Bitcoin standard. And so I pay my you know living expenses, bills, rent, whatever. And then the rest, I stack sats. That's essentially my 
strategy but i understand for some people that might be whoa that's like too much that's too crazy that's way out there i could everyone has to pick their own allocation for themselves in terms of what they would do i just don't see much value out there in terms of bonds and negative yielding you're not even winning against inflation there maybe you could have like depending on property or kind of stocks but i just sense my sense of it is that stocks and property are way overvalued and so that's why i'm avoiding that but that said if you were to think of property not for investment purposes, but more for consumption, let's say you wanted the security of a property that you own to raise your family, that kind of thing, I can understand. That's totally fine. So I guess those are a few of my high-level thoughts around Bitcoin versus other potential assets. Love it. And you seem very well-versed in the financial independence space. Uh, and I know we were chatting before and, and you mentioned that you're a big part of that community, what would be your top three tips for someone who's on their path to financial independence? I think step one is really try to look at ways to grow your income, whether that means you're yeah, if you can try to work hard at your job and get promoted there or have a side hustle. Step two is keep your living expenses low. That's really, so it's like playing good offense and playing good defense, probably steps one and two. And then step three is stacking stats. For me, (laughs) I would say, yeah. So basically look at ways to add more value to people, whether that's in your current job or having a side hustle business that you can earn more money to play good offense. And then step two is play good defense and keep your, think of what your big expenses are. And so in the fire world, the most common ones um, people talk about is stuff like, okay, how much is your housing? How much is your education? And do you have a car? So if you have a car and whatever, try to keep it cheap or maybe if you live in a city or some kind of area with good public transport you can just go without a car that's i guess those are some tips that people can do obviously depending on your net worth and your income and so on it's really i think those are that's a simple way to do it is earn more spend less stack that and that is probably the fire way love it last question here stefan you obviously didn't get to the level where you are today you know, without learning from people before you, what or who has been the most influential people, experiences or books on your path to financial independence? Yeah, good one. I would say from the fire world, I remember reading guys like JL Collins and I remember reading some of the other bloggers out there like Mr. Money Mustache and some of those guys. I would say from the fire world, those guys were influential on my thought. Obviously, from a Bitcoin perspective, they weren't. But I would say also this guy, Ramit Sethi, who's well known in the personal finance world as well. I would say those are some of the people who, I guess, influenced my thought. Also, the Bogleheads kind of community, obviously, Jack Bogle and the Vanguard, that kind of product suite was influential on my thinking from the FIRE perspective. From a Bitcoin perspective, it was more the Austrian school of economics. So that's people like Ludwig von Mises, Murray Rothbard, Guido Hulsman, Joseph Salerno, my friend Safety Namus, who I've interviewed on my show, Pierre Rashad, Michael Goldstein, Vijay Boyapati. Some of those guys from the Bitcoin world have been influential on my own thought in, in terms of how I think about Bitcoin. And so for me, I've honestly, I've thought of it like a meshing of those approaches. It's just that I see Bitcoin as the way to actually save and consider that as my savings technology for the long term. And so that has essentially been my path to how I think about FIRE. Stefan, finally, where can people get in touch with you and where can they listen to your podcast? 
Yeah, so thanks for uh, having me on the show. My show can be found at stefanlevera.com. You can find me on basically any podcatcher platforms, Spotify and all the rest of it on YouTube. And the Bitcoin Twitter, the Bitcoin community hangs out a lot on Twitter. So you can find me there on Twitter at stefanlevera. And then for those of you who are interested in things like Bitcoin guides and how do you use it for yourself, I also have a business called Ministry of Nodes. So you can find that at ministryofnodes.com.au. Those are probably the main places. But basically, if you just search Stefan Levera, you'll find me online and i my dms are open i'm happy to help people if they've got questions on bitcoin awesome that's uh very generous of you to put that offer out there stefan for anyone who's interested check out the show notes i'll have links to uh, all of those down at the bottom as well as the uh, the transcript so again stefan thanks so much for making time uh, out of your busy schedule to have a chat today i really appreciate it i've learned a lot myself and i'm sure everyone who's listened has uh, taken away a heap of great tips Excellent. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Captain Fire Financial Independence Podcast. To read the transcripts or check out the show notes, head over to www.captainfire.com for all the details. If you have a question for the captain, make sure to get in touch. You might even make it on the airwaves. You can reach me online through the Captain Fire contact form or get in touch through the socials. I'm active on Facebook and Instagram, as well as a number of online finance and investing forums. And finally, remember, the information presented on the show and the links provided are for general information purposes only. They should not be taken as constituting professional financial advice. You should always do your own research when making any financial decisions and make sure it's appropriate for your personal circumstance.